Well, thank you so much. It's always a privilege to come home and uh, to be with you. Uh, just a few minutes, the Lord has been uh, just blessing us uh, tremendously. Uh, we had, I think since the last time we've been here, uh, we've had our uh, next son, Silas, uh, who's in the back there. Hopefully you can get to, to meet him. He's doing well. His health is, uh, is doing okay. Um, he's on some new medication, seems to be responding well to that. So we're praising the Lord uh, for that. Um, at the, the seminary, the Spanish-speaking seminary, uh, we're blessed beyond belief. Uh, we have, I think, around 145 students now. We added um, some online classes. So we have about 70 on campus uh, coming from actually all the way up here. We have a couple of guys coming from San Joaquin right there at the 180 and the 5. Uh, every week we got guys all the way down to San Juan Capistrano and all over uh, Los Angeles. And I think we have and our 75 online students, I think we have about 14 different Spanish-speaking countries represented, Spain, Argentina, Ecuador, Colombia, all the way up to, to Mexico. And uh, the Lord is a uh, blessing there, so we're, we're just very, very thankful for what the Lord is, is doing uh, in our family and uh, in our ministry. So we just thank you so much for your prayers and for your, your gifts. Uh, we're, we pray for you guys often and Obviously, we're getting continual updates from Mom on uh, how you guys are doing, so we thank the Lord uh, for you. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 20. Moses uh, was a man pretty much unlike any other man in history. Uh, he was chosen from birth. He was miraculously protected, raised in Egypt's palace. He defied Pharaoh, uh, the most powerful man on the planet at the time. He was the leader of the entire people of God, God's mouthpiece to the world. Uh, he worked amazing miracles, right? I mean, water to blood and, and gnats and darkness and parts the Red Sea. Um, he goes up on a mountain that the Israelites couldn't even touch and he f talks face to face with God like a man does with his friend when he comes down from the mountain. His face is shining so brightly that the Israelites are terrified of him. And to speak of his greatness in the book of Revelation, John tells us that in heaven those who conquered the Lamb are singing Moses' song. And despite all his greatness, the Bible tells us that Moses was the humblest man on the planet. He was an exemplary leader, a type of the one to come. He patiently bore the brunt and weight of wicked and rebellious and complaining people time after time after time. Just days out of Egypt, they're already blaming him and wishing that they could return to Egypt to be Pharaoh's slave rather than to be a servant of Yahweh. And you remember that because of that rebellion, God condemns them, and they will all wander around the wilderness for 40 years and die, while another generation can be raised up. You can imagine those 40 years, Moses dealing with complaint after complaint after complaint. Twice God himself had had enough and was ready to annihilate the people of Israel. And uh, gives Moses a pretty good offer. To just wipe them out and start fresh with Moses, start a new nation. And Moses uh, displays such patient and humble um, just service to the people of God. He falls on his face, intercedes for the people of Israel, and saves them from extinction. And in Numbers chapter 20, where we'll be this morning, the internal chronology lets us know that we're now at year 40. So... The 40 years are now up. The last of the first generation is dying off. In fact, in verse 1, Miriam, Moses' sister, dies. And now it's time to enter into the promised land. 
And so what do you suppose happens? Do you think that people are going to learn from the sins of their fathers? No, they, they actually begin to complain again. Say, I'm thirsty. I wish I had died with my parents, they say to Moses. Everything seems as usual it has, as it has been in the last few books of the Bible. God provides a promise. He'll bring forth water from a rock. And though he had commanded Moses the last time to strike the rock, this time he tells Moses to speak to the rock. But Moses hits it twice. You guys know the story. that God judges Moses severely without mercy, without partiality, and tells Moses that he must die and will not enter the promised land because he had rebelled against the Lord. The same word that's used throughout our text to talk about Israel's rebellion. When Moses pleads with God later on and changes his mind, God tells them to be quiet. If you think or have thought to yourself the first time that you read through the story, wow, isn't that like a little bit harsh, a little bit over the top? It doesn't, it doesn't quite seem right, does it? I mean, just because he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock? And I mean, this is Moses we're talking about. I mean, God, did you forget everything that Moses has done in the story up till this point? It seems a little bit strict. I know that I have reacted in that way at times, and I think if we do, we have obviously yet to understand the holiness of God. And I would also suggest that if we think that maybe God should have showed a little little favoritism to Moses because of who he was and what he had done. Uh, Probably the root cause of that is we think God should show us a little bit of favoritism. Um, We are, you know, at Grace of the Valley, and we study the Bible. We go to midweek Bible study and doing all the right things and trying to raise a godly family. Uh, This morning, I'd like to analyze Moses' sin with you. What happened? Why did Moses respond the way that he did? And most importantly, why did God respond the way that he did? Uh, We'll be looking at the text uh, just with two points, Moses' response and then God's response. And I hope that seeing God's response to the rebellion of his friend Moses and the holiness and the impartiality of God's judgment will encourage us to obey God humbly at all times and cause us to be thankful that we are impartially judged according to the perfect righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to be focusing just on verses 10 through 13 of Numbers chapter 20. But if you would, I'd like to start by reading from verse 1, just to give us a little bit of the context of of where we are. Numbers uh, chapter 20, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Moses writes, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Sin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought us, the assembly of the Lord, into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place, There's no place for grain or figs or vine or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. 
And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Father, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity we have to examine your word. We pray that you would open our minds to behold the wonders of your law, that you would open our minds to understand, and that by your Holy Spirit you would give us uh, the power we need to live out the truth that you command us in this text. We thank you for the example of, of Moses and the people of Israel as it exhorts us to live in humility and to sanctify you as Lord in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Before we get to, to verse, verse 10, I'd like us to notice four quick things about the context in verses 1 through 9. Uh, first thing, notice that the trial is twofold. Miriam dies, and simultaneously, there is no water. This is not a coincidence. God is sovereign. If we ask ourselves, who, would, who is it that gives life and takes away life? Well, the answer is God. Who is it that's leading the people of God by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night? It is God. And who is it that takes the life of Miriam at the exact moment that he leads the people of Israel to a place where there is no water? It is God. Okay. Miriam was Moses' sister, probably the one who saved his life in the Nile. He loved her. But she's also the one just eight chapters earlier who had been filled with envy against Moses, and uh, God actually made her leprous. Moses had to have been filled with all sorts of emotions at her death, uh, and it's easy to imagine who would have been to blame in Moses' mind uh, for the death of his sister. Uh, it was always the people of Israel and their rebellion and their complaining um, that caused problems, no doubt. It's what caused Miriam's jealousy and therefore her death, and simultaneously there's no water. Um, it's kind of a sort of a big deal when you're dealing with two million people in a desert, um, all their animals. And uh, I, I know because this is how God works, that this has happened to you because it's happened to me and every child whom God loves, that God brings the trial to us right at the worst possible moment from our perspective. Um, it, if it is, of course, um, the best possible moment um, in God's eternal plan to help us to trust more in Him. Well, how do the people respond to the trial? There's insurrection, complaints. The trial sort of 
heats up. Notice uh, what they're saying. Oh, that we could have died with our parents' generation in the desert. Why did you bring us to Egypt? Why did you do this? You promised us pomegranates. We're stuck here in the desert. Uh, it's so easy as you, you watch the progression in, in the book of Numbers as the people start to kind of grumble a little bit and then complain. And it must not seem that bad. The progression is subtle. But God calls that grumbling and that complaint faithless rebellion. Uh, because that's what it is. It's not to trust God. It's not to trust the wisdom of his plan. Um, it's to forget over and over and over in the law. God puts in place all these reminders so that the people of Israel won't forget. He says, you're going you're gonna to get out of Egypt and you're going to enter in the promised land and get in your paneled houses and then you're going to forget. You're going to forget what I've done to you. What, what I've done for you. And so he gives them all these things, blue tassels on their garments, and, and put the law here on your forehead, and remember every Saturday, and remember once a month, and remember at all these feasts, and all these mechanisms to help them not forget. Uh, so we're a forgetful, forgetful people. Second uh, Peter 1.9 tells us as Christians that if we're not loving people, that if we don't have faith, if we're not patient, that the reason is is that because we have forgotten that we've been cleansed from our past sins. And if we're not living in righteousness, the reason is because we too have forgotten. We've forgotten the cross. That's why too in the church we celebrate the Lord's table as we do to not forget. We complain and get our minds stuck here instead of seeking the things above. Well, how does God, what does God do? He gives them a promise clear and simple instructions on how to obtain the blessing. He tells Moses, take the staff, assemble the people, and speak to the rock. Moses doesn't need to take notes. There's nothing complicated here. It's amazing, as a quick point of application, how, how easily we complicate the Bible. The Bible c contains very clear, very simple instructions on what God wants us to do. And we're, we, we just have this tendency to say, you know, here in the valley and, and here in our generation and, and kind of contextualize it a little bit. And I think we should do it like this when, when the scriptures are just so clear. And finally, what does Moses do? Well, he obeys, just as always at first, right? He falls on his face. He calls out to God. Right at the beginning of verse 10, all is well. He took the staff and gathered the people, the text says, just as God had commanded him. And that brings us up to speed, up to verse 10, where our message uh, starts. Again, we'll be looking at Moses' response and then God's response. Moses, uh, Moses had put up with a lot at this point in Numbers 20, verse 10, 40 years. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, remember in Exodus 32, when Moses is up on the mount, he comes back down and Aaron's got a golden calf going on and they're all worshiping Yahweh through idolatry. God is so angry that he says, and I quote, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Moses pleads for Israel. God changes his mind, so to speak, from man's perspective, doesn't destroy Israel. But now 40 years has passed. This is the new generation. This is the generation that's supposed to enter into the promised land. And Moses seems to be thinking they just don't ever get it. They just don't learn. And the current system, the current program just doesn't seem to be working. 
It's not yielding results. And if I just give them grace again, I don't know, God. I don't know. I think what they need is a fiery rebuke to get them to understand how serious and how terrible their sin was. In other words, Moses did not believe God. Moses thought he knew in a better way. The people needed to change and yelling at them, here now you rebels, and striking the rock would show the people how serious their sin was. This, of course, is exactly what we do today. We're tempted to do the same. God tells us, I'm holy. Tell the people to repent. And we think, my neighbor's not going to want to come to church with a message like that. He's not going to want to hear about a God like that. Right? They're going to want to hear. They need to hear about God's love and that he has a wonderful plan for their lives. God says, preach the word. But, I mean, that's going to be a little bit offensive, isn't it? I mean... We can, we can win many more people over to Christ with more music, a skit here and there. Then they'll stay and be saved. That's nonsense. They will be saved by God, and they will be saved, therefore, through His means. It is prideful and rebellious sin to think we know a better way than God. And I, I know you might be thinking, just I, I know that you're used to talking to pastors, but we're actually not all pastors here. Um, I don't know how this applies to me. Uh, obviously, the book of Numbers isn't addressed to pastors. Um, Moses' life is an example to all of us. Um, in, in a style of argumentation that the Bible uses often, which is kind of the, the greater to the lesser, um, that, that if this is how God dealt with Moses, right, much more he's going to deal with me when I sin. Um, and, and this... Uh, demonstration of God's character to us is going to apply to all commands that we have, right? Even as pastors, we don't have these same commands of, you know, pick up the staff and get the congregation together and talk to a rock, but we all have commands that the Lord gives to us, and the question is whether we're going to take him at his word and do what he says, or whether we're going to insert ourselves, insert our own wisdom, and try to do it our way. So me as a, a father of three young children, the first example that came to my mind was Right? As fathers, instruct your children, discipline your children, and don't exasperate them. That's pretty clear. Uh, the same commands throughout the entire New Testament. Um, and so I have a choice. I can say, you know, we live in California. I mean, discipline them physically? I mean, all this psychologist tells us, I mean, that's just going to embitter them towards us, right? I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if that's going to work. I think maybe like a timeout. Once a week, put them in the corner, you know, no. No, that's, that's faithless rebellion. That is to disbelieve God's wisdom. And that is the very sin that kept Israel from entering into the promised land. We'll get there in a second, but notice the very first thing that God tells Moses is, you did not believe in me. To do it our way is not to trust God, not to trust that his way is best. When God gives us a command, it matters to him not only that, that we do it, but how we do it, without questioning, without complaining. And, and one of the reasons it's interesting as we think through the New Testament, reflecting back on this text, um, you know, there's just a million reasons why God does the things that God does that we're rarely going to find out about until heaven. You know, God says, do it like this. And it doesn't really seem that wise from our point of view, so in our pride we do it our way. 
when God in his eternal perspective had already planned it best. I wonder, although it seems pretty clear he didn't, but right, did Moses know that, I quote from 1 Corinthians 10.4, that the rock that followed them from which they drank was Christ? I, I sort of doubt it. <laughs> I doubt that Moses would have purposefully and consciously struck the rock twice if he knew that that rock was Christ. But isn't that just the point in the text? We don't know. We don't need to know. We, like Moses, don't know all the why. We, like Job, aren't privy to the celestial discussions that precede our pain. But that does not give us the right to question the wisdom of the Almighty. We have his command, and we would do well as Job to put our hand over our mouth and did as he did and obey exactly as we were instructed. And an interesting note as we continue on in the text, by screaming out, here now you rebels, Moses makes himself one. This word rebel or rebel is applied to every single person in our text. The people, Moses, Aaron, notice a little bit further on in Numbers 20, verse 24, God says, now Aaron has to die too. Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Well, Moses, you rebelled. Not obeying God's command exactly as it is stated is disbelief and it is rebellion. And without trying to stretch the text, I think God specifically instructs us as well that by trying to do it his own way, Moses tried to take a little bit of God's honor as well. You say, Josiah, I mean, this is Moses. Moses is like the humblest guy on the planet, right? I mean, are you saying that Moses was, was being prideful? Well, to say that Moses was the humblest man on the planet really isn't saying much. I mean, when you compare him to, to us, um, yes, that's exactly what, what God is saying according to God's standard. Notice Notice that Moses says, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And I understand that in verse 8, God had, had told them directly, Tell the rock to yield its water, so you shall bring water out from the rock for them. But we need to be very, very careful not to take God's glory. It's the one thing that God will never let anyone do. Isaiah 48, 11, My glory I will not give another. And if you notice, if we, if we take a little bit of a closer look at the command in verse 8, it's a very simple command. God said, speak to or tell the rock. Not tell the people, not speak to the people, but speak to the rock. In other words, the moment that Moses uttered the word, listen or hear now, he had already disobeyed. Much worse, having said, listen now, you rebels, and much worse, shall we do this, and much worse than when he strikes the rock. You see, Moses inserted himself. He inserted himself into God's plan. He was supposed to, step one, take the staff. Step two, gather the people. Step three, tell the rock to yield its water. But he added a step to B, right? He inserted himself. He gathered the people, then rebuked the people, then deal with the rock. And by doing so, he was not showing God's holiness to the people, verse 12. He was showing more of himself than God had commanded. And God takes that very, very seriously. God's commands are clear and simple. 
And our job is not complicated. Our job is to obey exactly as instructed. Well, that was Moses' response. Now let's look at God's response to Moses. Second half of verse 11. After Moses had rebelled and struck the rock twice with his rod, it says that water came forth abundantly and the congregation and their beasts drank. It's almost, uh, it's almost unbelievable. It's almost unbelievable. Everybody in the text is rebelling against God. Everybody's disbelieving. And yet water comes forth abundantly. It's just amazing, amazing um, to think of the hope that that gives to us uh, complaining people and prideful people that God deals graciously with his children, not, not based on our own merits or our own actions, but based on his gracious, immutable character. Um, and as I, as I thought last night through where you are a little bit as a church, maybe at a, a fork in the road for some of you as you're making some decisions here at Grace the Valley, um, and I just thought it was appropriate um, to think forward, to look forward, um, and to make sure as we look forward that we're looking at the Word of God. Uh, in our world, especially in Christianity today, um, the idea of doing things in a pragmatic fashion, to sort of do what works, is just such a common thing. And one of the things you'll notice in our text is that if someone was taking a look at this situation from a third-person perspective, from an outside perspective, to see what works, they obviously would have thought, well, I mean, if you want to get the water flowing abundantly, what do you need to do? You need to hit that thing good. You need to raise your voice a little bit, right? Because that's what works. Now that, so, I mean, it's, it's easy to make these conclusions. Well, that, that's what worked for Moses, and so that means that we must, that must mean that we should do this. We should do the same thing. Um, no, that, that must mean that God is gracious and gave to the people of Israel things that they didn't deserve because he had made promises to their fathers. So it's easy. It's easy in the church today to look at some church and it's got 15,000, 20,000 members and, and we want to have more people here. And so that, that's working. That works. So let's do, no, no. Let's do what it says, right? Because God blesses us not necessarily because of our own actions as our children. He blesses us because his son died in our place and closes with his righteousness. Um, <clears throat> Obviously, God decided. He had promised in Genesis 15 they're going to be in Egypt for 40, 400 years, and then they were going to come in and enter into the land, and it was time. So obviously the second generation of Israelites didn't deserve to enter the promised land any more than any other generation, um, but it was time. God had promised, and uh, God, it was time for God to show mercy. Seems like Moses wanted severity, and so what happens? God, God wins, just like he always does. God was merciful to Israel and only severe with Moses. People received their water. God's plan was accomplished. Yes, Moses sinned, but God didn't allow that to interfere with his plan. 
Um, it's interesting then in verse 12, uh, God's uh, verbal response to Moses. He says, you didn't believe me to treat me as holy. I already mentioned that a little bit, why Moses didn't believe by not obeying the command exactly. Uh, Moses wasn't trusting God's wisdom. But notice specifically what God says. He says, you didn't believe me to sanctify me or to uphold me as holy in the sight of all the people. That is, your unbelief tried to make me look common. Your unbelief tried to make me look like you, and I am not. That's the sin of Israel throughout the Old Testament, Psalm 50, 21. You thought I was altogether like you, and I'm going to rebuke you to your face, because I am not. I am holy. It's the sin of the golden calf in Exodus 32 to fashion Yahweh after images of our own mind. Can't do that. Can't do that. And we'll see this very clearly in verse 13. Moses didn't show God as holy to the people, and so God judges Moses and shows himself even more clearly to be anything but common, anything but human, nothing like us. The verdict, you'll notice, comes uh, at the end of verse 12. Therefore, you shall not bring the people into the land. One sin, one time, God judges him severely and without mercy, without partiality. It's very uncommon, very unlike us. And I just want to take a, a moment to make a, a few points of application here because we live in a society that flourishes on favoritism. You know, if this guy's important, roll out the red carpet. You know, we've got to treat him differently because he's important. He's famous. And that's not the way it is with God. The first two thoughts here. First, God judges us without consideration for who we are. Right? Moses, Moses was God's friend. Moses was as important of a man as a man can be in God's plan, as dear as a man can be in God's heart. Right? He talked with God face to face like a man does his friend. Can you imagine that? Talking with God face to face. Remember in Numbers 12, uh, when the people were rebelling there, God rebukes them. God oftentimes defends Moses, um, speaks out of the clouds. Someone gets mad at Moses, God eats them up from the ground. In Numbers 12, 6, God says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him. In a vision, I speak in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth and clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You don't mess with Moses. Moses is God's friend. But come to Numbers 20, and sin is sin, and God is holy and jealous for his glory. So, if God judged his friend Moses impartially, how much more me? How much more us? And in actuality, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us we actually have less chance that God would let one of our sins slide. Hebrews 10, 29 says that we will face a much worse condemnation on this side of the cross, being in the new covenant, because we have tasted right, the new covenant. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. It would be to trample the Son of God, 
and disdain his blood. And he who has given much, much will be required, our Lord says. Secondly, notice that God judges us without consideration for what we've done. I mean, if there's, if there's anyone in the Bible that would have built up a little bit of credit with God, it had to have been Moses. Um, you know, the sort of thinking that, um, you know, if I do a bunch of good things and I have the opportunity to slip up every now and then, you know, if I get, if I get A's on the first nine of Mr. Booker's quizzes, then the 10th dr- the one he's obviously going to drop, you know, if I don't do so well. I mean, that's just sort of the right thing to do, right? No, it's not, not, not the just thing to do in God's mind. Sorry for future students there, but... Um, God's not like that. God is just, completely and totally just. And it's, it's interesting, it doesn't even matter what you do afterwards. And notice, if you have your Bibles, turn quickly to, to Deuteronomy 3, where Moses is recounting uh, the story, or recounting our text from, Deuteron- from Numbers 20. And he says in Deuteronomy 3.23, <clears throat> And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan and that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes westward and northward. For you shall not go over this Jordan. Well, it doesn't matter what you do afterwards. The consequences of sin are irrevocable. And I think as Christians, we are particularly vulnerable to this type of sin. You know, we think, yeah, I mean, I'll I'll sin, but then afterwards I'll ask forgiveness and the blood of Christ will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Be very careful, be very careful, you who profess Christ with that sort of thinking. That is exactly the sort of rationale that has led to the apostasy of thousands who thought that they were washed with Christ's blood when they were not. And secondly, even for us Christians, though the cross has cleared us from eternal condemnation, it did not clear us from the temporal consequences we face here on earth. Moses demonstrates this fact very clearly. Moses obviously will not be facing condemnation in heaven for this rebellion, but he certainly lost reward and he certainly suffered pain here on earth. David's the same. He begins his life as the joy-filled dancing psalmist, and then after his sin with Bathsheba, How's his life going after that? Right, Shimei starts cursing him and throwing rocks at him, and he says, let him curse. My life is miserable. Um, Paul says it like this in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that also will he reap. Christian, if you think you can sin and not face consequences for your actions, then you think you can mock God. We will receive consequences. If we are his children, he will discipline us because he loves us. So Moses sinned and Moses died. Finally, verse 13 says, These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Do you notice that progression there? Verse 11, Moses' faithlessness did not show Yahweh is holy. So in verse 12, Yahweh showed himself to be holy by judging Moses. 
sometimes I, I think of the glory of God like a train speeding down the track. And you can hop on board and you can enjoy the ride or you can be run over. But there's no slowing it down. There's no changing its course. God will be sanctified as holy through us or in spite of us. But he will do it. And, and there's just too many examples in the Bible to, to show this. But I love, as I thought through all the different examples in my mind, every time someone tries to go against God's plan and receive some of the glory, that every text ends with God demonstrating that he wins. Notice as a sort of almost funny example in Acts 12, when Herod uh, tries to take a little bit of God's glory, he gives a great speech, and in Acts 12, 22, it says that the people were shouting, Voice of a God and not a man. And immediately, verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God glory and he was eaten by worms and died. And verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God will increase and it will multiply with or without my fine preaching skills. The Lord will do it. So I have a choice. I can give God glory by being used by him, or I can give God glory by being bruised by him. But he will do it. He will do it. He is sovereign. He will get the glory. Moses, right, Moses is a pretty important person in the plan of God. He is the only leader of the entire people of God on planet Earth. Seemingly indispensable. He sinned, he died, and Joshua took his place, just as simple as that. If God could replace Moses that easily, how easy do you think it is for God to replace me? Pretty easy. Pretty easy. Uh, be careful. Be careful. It's so easy. So easy. You know, you, you work hard all week. Uh, you wake up early, have family devotions. You're working hard to do things right, to raise a godly family. And everything seems good until Numbers chapter 20, verse 10b. And someone comes up to you and comments about what a, what a godly family you have and what a good job you're doing raising them. And you're thinking, <laughs> you start to pat yourself on the back for the great job that you're doing. And you get into this, this shall we syndrome that Moses was in. That me and God, man, we make a really good team. We're doing a good job. No, no, the best team is God and no one. Because everyone on God's team just slows him down. And we are not indispensable. Um, he needs no one. If he uses us, it's by his good and gracious pleasure. What a good reminder to stay humble at all times. Well, in conclusion, uh, God's word is, is clear. His message is not complicated. We just need to obey it. Not our way, but his way. To obey our way is to disbelieve. Um, you know, the, the common thinking of our day that if I dress like the world and drink like the world and play poker like the world, then I'll reach more people out of the world for Christ. That is, that is not innocuous human wisdom. That is faithless rebellion against the God who commands us to be holy and to sacrifice ourselves and our own desires to win people. We don't do surveys that would only tempt us to give the people what they're asking for instead of give them what God tells us to give them which is Christ crucified. There can be no better way to do things than the perfect way that God has already laid out for us in his word. 
And finally, I, I just want to draw our attention quickly to, to the gospel. Like so many doctrines, I find when understood correctly, the fact that God judges us impartially should bring us great, great fear if we disobey, but great peace and joy when we obey. It obviously causes fear with those who disbelieve, because if you think you're going to get to heaven because, well, you know, I've tried to live a good life, you know, at the end of the day, I've done more good things than bad, and I've, you know, I've suffered a lot here in this life. I think God will probably show me mercy. God is love, right? Well, well, maybe you're at Grace of the Valley, so you have much better arguments than that uh, for why uh, God should accept you into heaven uh, because you go to church and whatever. I don't know what your arguments are. I don't know what your thought process is and how you justify uh, your righteous life before God. Um, but it doesn't matter what kind of arguments we conjure up. God hates sin and is a just judge, and he will judge us without partiality, without favoritism in an eternity of hellfire unless unless we have repented of our sins and believed in Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the world, making him Lord of our life because we know that he lived a sinless life. He died the death that we deserve. And that God raised him on the third day to give us the hope of eternal life. Then, if that is the case, the fact that God is an objective and impartial judge is the greatest news in the world. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter if you're a convicted criminal hanging on a cross. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're the most worthless Gentile woman on the planet. Cry out to God for salvation, and He promises to judge you impartially according to the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. See, it's sort of necessary from Numbers 20 to see. Though it's hard to accept originally that God has the ability to judge his friend objectively and wish out without partiality, without respect to persons for what he'd done or for who he was, because it demonstrates that he will be able to judge us who were his enemies in an equally objective fashion. See, God can look at me and see the filthy, wicked, worthless man that I am, and yet amazingly, look at my account, my record, and on paper, I am perfectly and completely blameless. He is a just judge. Praise his holy name because that is the only chance we've got. Any lesser judge, any less objective, objective judge wouldn't be able to look past who we are and what we've done. God does and he will continue to do so until that day when he actually makes us righteous in heaven, that glorious day when Christ presents us to his Father without reproach. Pray that we may be faithful to live a life worthy of what he's done for us, always obeying his word, exactly what it says and exactly how it says to do it.